All right, so we are continuing our study through the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is Matthew chapters 5 to 7, and we finished the Beatitudes, and there's this transition passage in verses 13 to 16, um, probably for some of us pretty familiar territory, um, salt and light. Uh, you are the salt of the earth, you are the light of the world. So if you're not there already, turn in your Bible to Matthew chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible, there's one in the pew in front of you, and you can grab that and turn to Matthew chapter 5. It's the first book in the New Testament, and you can find our passage on page 810. All right, so while you're turning there, I want you to think with me here. Um, what is the Christian's responsibility to society? Like, what is our responsibility, our relationship to, our responsibility to this world? Um, some Christians tend to withdraw in order to maybe not be contaminated. Um, throughout history, there have been movements where there's this real withdraw, withdrawal from um, society, from the world. Um, you can think of the Amish or Mennonites or even monks. Um, to monasteries, things like that, um, movements like that. Uh, there can also be a withdrawal that ends up being pretty antagonistic, and um, it's almost like withdrawing into the bunker and lobbing all kinds of caustic condemnation, like grenades. And so maybe the relationship there is often one of negative antagonism. So should we retreat like that into communes and withdraw from the world? I mean... Isn't there a saying that goes, why polish the brass on a sinking ship? Is that how we ought to relate to society? And others think that Christians ought to transform the world, uh, actively engaging, recruiting Christians to pour into every cultural, um, culture-shaping sphere, you know, especially maybe the most influential ones like media, politics, government, law, etc., so the more Christians that we have in those seats of power and influence, the more the structures and institutions of society will be shaped and transformed by Christian thought and values. So there's been lots of different ways that Christians have related to society. There's plenty of cautionary tales in history, aren't there? Um, for instance, when the church and state have been too intertwined, Crusades, you know, there's lots of, you know, failed attempts and, and stuff that we wouldn't necessarily want to emulate, um, withdraw, mingling church and state too much, but they're in this middle spot, like, what, what does this look like? How do we navigate these things? And so our passage this morning is going to give us a lot of help along those lines, um, as far as what this ought to look like. Because we are called to be salt and light. The Beatitudes is very countercultural. It's not what we would expect necessarily. It's not what the world values. It's sometimes not, sadly, what the church values. Um, but it's what Jesus values. And his values ought to be our values, even if it's countercultural. And it's actually by that very countercultural value system that we will be most effective in influencing our world in the way that Jesus intended. So you could also ask the question, maybe not thinking of some of the ways in which we would not want to, to imitate, you know, 
failed attempts at Christians and society and that interplay. Why is the world not worse than it, than it is? I mean, it's bad enough, right? You watch the news and you're like, oh, this is depressing. But why is the world not worse than it, than it is? I mean, what if there wasn't a William Wilberforce? What if there had been no Amy Carmichael for those precious little girls in India that were, you know, used as cult prostitutes in elementary school age? What if there was never Edith and Francis Schaeffer? You might not know all these names, but these are people who have had profound influence. C. Everett Koop, you know, he used to be Attorney General of the United States. Did you know that he's from Philly? He's obviously with the Lord now. He's, he's dead. But he's from Philly, and he influenced Sharon Vickers before she was even a Christian. Maybe you don't know who Sharon Vickers is, but she's the executive director of Door of Hope. She's the one that started a Door of Hope, the Crisis Pregnancy Center in Illinois. So obviously, C. Everett Coop, you know, had a pretty significant platform. Um, but that conversation, however many years ago, 40 years ago or something, influenced Sharon Vickers. She becomes a Christian, and then she spends her life getting this, these pregnancy centers started. And think about all the impact of A Door of Hope in Delaware. She's now back as the executive director. What if there was never a Dietrich Bonhoeffer? What if there was never an Elizabeth Elliot? What if there was never a Branch Rickey and Jackie Robinson? What if there was never a, a C.S. Lewis or a Chuck Colson? Think of Prison Fellowship and all the impact there that Chuck Colson had. So this world is a mess. <laughs> I mean, we could just go on and on with names, right? But it's a lot better for those people being in it. They were salt and light. And Jesus is here. The king is on the scene. He's got a message for his disciples, for us. If you are a disciple of Jesus, he's speaking to you and me. And he wants us to have the same kind of influence. Um, so here we go. There's an outline in the bulletin, or you'll see the slides on the screen here behind me. First point, you are the salt of the earth. Verse 13, Matthew chapter 5. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. So, I don't know about you, but in the McGarvey household, we like salt. Okay? Anybody with me? Um, on eggs, vegetables, pasta, kids like butter and salt, um, french fries, of course, etc. Thankfully, we don't have any blood pressure issues yet. Um, so, what do you like salt on? Think of the thing that, you know, would be top of the list for you. Maybe it's eggs or whatever. And imagine you got this new salt shaker, make your eggs, they're piping hot, pull them off the stove, you know, shake the salt on there, you take a bite, no salt. Like, bleh. Oh, maybe the holes are too small or something, and so you shake again a little harder, and you see it come out, you know, and still, no taste, no difference. So you're like, what is the deal? Maybe you unscrew the cap, and you lick your finger, and you go, like this, and it's just bleh, like chalk, 
just dust. What are you going to do with that new can of salt? Salt, what are you going to do with it? Pitch it. Okay? It's not good for anything. If the salt is not salty, it's worthless. Now, salt can't technically lose its saltiness. It's a very stable compound. Um, but it can be contaminated by way of what it's mixed with. So Jesus is speaking at a time, in a context, before refineries. Okay, So limestone or chalk could look very much like salt, but be worthless for salt purposes. Or salt could be so adulterated, contaminated, that it was not salty anymore. It didn't have its influencing, seasoning, preserving properties as it should. So here's the point. Salt is the influencer, the seasoner. You shouldn't have to season the seasoning. You wouldn't take that bad canister and go, well, let me just salt this, and then it'll be good. No, it's worthless, because salt is supposed to salt. It's supposed to season. It's supposed to flavor. It's supposed to preserve. So seasoning that needs seasoning isn't seasoning. And if the seasoning isn't doing its work, you don't season it, you throw it out. So there's a warning here. It's a sober warning here. Now let's remember who Jesus is addressing. If you look at the beginning of Matthew chapter 5, he saw the crowds and he went up on the mountain and when he sat down, his disciples came to him and he opened his mouth and taught them. So primarily, he is speaking to his disciples, people who've committed to following him, who are trusting him. Okay? So when he says, you are the salt of the earth, he's speaking to his disciples. So these are not entrance requirements. You know, if you're salty enough, then I'll let you in. No. These are the ethics of the kingdom of heaven. But, as we, if you read through the Gospels, you know, lots of people followed him and then they peeled off. And they stopped following him. So Jesus is challenging those who claim to follow him to test the substance, the reality of their profession. So, you, if you are following me, if you are a new creation in Christ, if you have trusted Jesus as your Savior, and you were in Christ, united to him, he took your sin on the cross and totally paid for it, and he gives you his righteousness, and you are his, and he is yours, and you're following him, you are the salt of the earth. So, we are to be who we are. Live up to our identity. Okay? Salt is supposed to salt. So Christians ought to influence like Christ. They ought to exercise this preservative influence. And if we aren't having any of that kind of influence, we need to ask some hard questions of ourselves. This is a warning. It's a gut check. So the world is in decay. It can't help it. But we can. And we must. So John Stott said this, Christian salt has no business to remain snugly in elegant little ecclesiastical, that's churchy salt cellars. Our place is to be rubbed into the secular community as salt is rubbed into meat to stop it going bad. It's in the day and age before refrigerators. This was absolutely necessary. So one can hardly blame unsalted meat for going bad. It cannot do anything else. The real question to ask is, where is the salt? So that's us. 
If you are a Christian, if you're following Jesus, you are the salt of the earth. Second metaphor, you're the light of the world. Verse 14 and verse 15. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. So imagine I go to the store or order on Amazon and get this really sweet new mag light and fresh batteries like the top of the line Duracell, you know, batteries that cost way too much and pop those suckers in that nice new flashlight, turn it on and then just go stick it in a box and put it on the shelf. If you watch me do that, what are you going to what are you going to think? What are you going to say? I, mean, I, know, I know this is simple. You're like, duh. You're, you're wasting the batteries. Like, what are you doing? Or if you light a candle and just go stick it in the garage and close the door and then go in the house and keep going. One, you might, you probably won't burn your house down or your garage down. But you're wasting heat and light and probably scent, which would more so be the reason we use candles these days than light. But what is light for? A city set on a hill can't be hidden. So, you know, we think we've got electricity. They didn't back then. If you were in the Middle Eastern countryside and there's a city on a hill, it's really dark there. There's not a lot of light pollution. Okay, again, this is before electricity. So some lamps in a village city up on a hill... If you're down in the valley, you will not fail to see that city on the hill. It's going to show, even with, you know, what we would view as really low candle power lighting. It can't be hidden. So if we are not lighting our world, we're not serving our purpose. If we hide our light, turn the light on, stick it in a box, put it on the shelf, we're defeating our purpose. It's God's purpose for our lives. For, that's why he lit us in the first place. So Sam Storm says this, um, did God redeem us, shed the light of his spirit in our hearts, only then to cover us over in the darkness of silence and passivity? No. So when God has mercy on your soul and saves you, he saves you to a purpose. One of those purposes is to light the world, light your world. So if we're afraid to shine, what does that mean? If we're hiding our light, what is, why are we doing that? We need to ask these hard questions. Again, it's a gut check. So either you're not living according to who you really are, or maybe, are you really lit? Are you really light? Listen to how a couple of times, Paul and Peter, how they describe Christians. Like, you can see how we ought to be the light of the world. This is why God saved us, so that we can shine with his light. So Titus 2, 11 to 14 says this, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. 
We want to shine. We want to do good works and reflect the good, bright, radiant character of our gracious Savior. Or 1 Peter 2, 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So if you're a Christian, you are the light of the world. So the question is, are you lighting the world? And if not, what does that mean? Now remember, if you were here in previous weeks, we noted the fact that before Jesus starts the Sermon on the Mount, after he's baptized and he begins his earthly ministry, the first recorded words out of his mouth are in Matthew 4, 17. He says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We're going to need to change. <laughs> the king is on the scene, and we're going to need to change. But this is a good, gracious message. Repentance is like turning on the flow of grace into our lives. Because, of course, we're wrong. We need set right. And Jesus comes to do that. So we shouldn't be too surprised if he says something here and it goes, oh, I am not living up to this like I ought to. So the point is not rub your face in it, you failure, you know. It's, of course we need to repent so that we can be what God intends us to be, to shine with his light, to influence and preserve and flavor this world like he intends, right? So this world is so dark, it needs so much light. And you know what? You might not think that your light is worth that much, but have you ever been in a really dark context? I, mean, I don't know many people have watches that have like a light on their thing. Just a little teeny tiny indiglow watch light can make all the difference in the world for you, right? In, in real darkness, a little light can make all the difference. So don't sell yourself short. We don't all, you know, we're not going to necessarily be floodlights, you know, like the things that can be seen in the skies from miles away. So Beth read those passages from Isaiah. Did you hear the light to the nations language? That's what the, that's what the people of God were supposed to be. And they had failed at it. They had run into the darkness. And so he sent Jesus, the servant of the Lord, the light of the world, so that we could be remade, drawn out of the darkness, remade, once again shine with his light so that we can be the light to the nations that God intended us to be. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And then he says, you are the light of the world. I am the light of the world. Now you are the light of the world. So, our light isn't the same as his light. Ours is totally derivative. We're just like the moon. He's the sun. I mean, did you see the moon last night? Is that awesome? And even early this morning, it was like, yeah, when I was driving in, boom, this huge um, full moon. It's beautiful. So that's us. We're called to reflect the radiance of the sun, to illumine this dark world and bring light and truth and freedom. 
So our mission statement here at Bethel is we exist to reflect. If you, it's on the front of the bulletin up in the top right corner. We exist to reflect like moons to the sun, God's infinite worth through Christ for the glory of his name and the good of all peoples. Okay? We need to be set on the sun so that we shine with his light. And when we do, people see how great he is and he gets the glory. And they get helped because they get his love and his truth and his forgiveness and his compassion and his care and all of that. So Paul Tripp commented on Matthew 5.14. He said, kind of paraphrased it this way, you are the light of your neighborhood. You are the light of your office. You are the light of your school. You are the light of your gym. You are the light of your little league. Do we view ourselves that way? Do we walk through the week that way? I am the light of this context. So then the question is, how? How do we do this? How do we influence like this? How do we season? How do we preserve? How do we shine like this? Well, obviously at one level we could just say, only by the grace of God, right? The light is not in us. We need his light to shine through us. We need his grace. We need his truth. We need him working in us, enabling us to reflect his character. We need his spirit filling us so that we bear the fruit of the spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. So it's his grace worked out through us, influencing and preserving and shining. But to zero in a little bit, it's helpful to see where this section stands so that we answer this question, how does this happen? How do we do this? Okay, I know I'm supposed to be salt and light. How do I do that? We zero in by just noticing where this passage is in the context. Okay, it forms, it's like a hinge in the context. Okay, so point number three, let's just notice how it's a hinge. It follows on the heels of the Beatitudes. So here's the point. If you are living out the Beatitudes, if you want, if you recognize your total spiritual poverty, you're totally needy. We all are. Utterly needy. We got, we, apart from Jesus, we can't do anything. And we hate our sin and we mourn over it. And we are meek and humble. And again, depending on the Lord, we're hungry for righteousness hungering and thirsting for righteousness. We understand God's mercy to us and we begin to give that mercy to others, etc. Peacemakers. When that is who we are, do you see how we begin to season, to preserve, and to shine? So if you want to know how to be salt and light, I just think this is incredibly helpful and practical. Go back to the Beatitudes. I mean, I, I'm convicted as I study this this week, like not being the influence I ought to be. What do you do? Repent. Recognize your need. Mourn over it. Mourn over how you've been ashamed and afraid and more worried about your comfort and your reputation than the name of God and loving other people. Just own it. 
You see how the Beatitudes just bring you back, fill you up, and then you're enabled to shine and to preserve. So if we're going to be salt and light, we need to give attention to who we are. Poor in spirit, mourning over sin, meek, etc. So instead of coming up with some grandiose evangelistic plan, we can at least start back and go to the Beatitudes and pray for grace to embody them. I mean, I had this happen this week. I was really frustrated at one point with myself. I'm often there. Um, so all the ways I want to grow, be better at this or that, feeling like a failure here or there, whatever, and totally overwhelmed and almost feeling like stuck, like, oh. And literally, the Lord brings this to mind. Wait a second. <laughs> at least I can repent. <laughs> I can recognize my failure and own it and say, help. And it was amazing. Like, the Lord totally reoriented me and encouraged me. So saltiness and radiance might be way less flashy and way more ordinary than we think. So this is noteworthy because I think you know, again, we've, we've said before, like the Beatitudes are countercultural. A lot of people might think that if you live out the Beatitudes, you're just going to get ignored and run over. <laughs> but no, this, like Jesus, Jesus' strength was worked out through weakness, right? It's like the paradox, the, the upside-down nature of the kingdom. He gave his life and gave life. So we follow him on that low road and we end up having a profound influence, even if it's in very ordinary, quote-unquote, ways, day by day. Okay, So don't chide yourself with, I need to be the light of the world. I need to be the light of the world. I need to be better at being the light of the world. I'm so bad at being the light of the world. Come on, Chris. Ugh. Be the light of the world today. So don't wake up tomorrow morning and say, I need to be the light of the world. I need to be the light of the world. Instead, so, so don't just focus on techniques Focus on Christ. Let's fix our eyes on the sun of righteousness and then our faces are going to shine with his light. Our lives are going to be like moons to the sun. His light is going to radiate through us. We're going to embody these beatitudes and it will lead to the glory of God. And then also, you know, the beatitudes talk about hungering and thirsting after righteousness. I said it was a hinge, right? You go along and you see, I need to put my anger away. I need to repent. What if God deals with our anger and we are content, patient, long-fused people? Do you think you might have some salt and light influence if that's characteristic of us? How about this, like, sensate, lust-drenched culture? Jesus says, you know, obviously adultery is wrong, but I say to you, even if you look with lust at someone, you've already committed adultery with them in your heart. What if we so dealt with our hearts as the church and wanted purity? We wanted to be pure and faithful to Jesus, whether we're single or married, all the way down to the core. Do you think that could maybe have some salt and light influence in this world? Absolutely. And we certainly will negate and kind of short-circuit our influence if we are 
giving ourselves to lust. Because our eyes are certainly not on Jesus if that's the case. So, look at verse 16 now. Point number four, let your light shine before others for the glory of your Father. Okay, so verse 16, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. This is actually the main point of this section. Okay, if you think about it, verses 13 to 15 provide two illustrations. You're the salt of the earth, season and preserve. You're the light of the world, need to shine. Let your light shine before others. God intends for them to see your changed life, your good works. And some of them will give glory to your Father who's in heaven. So pretty simple, straightforward. Salt is for seasoning. Light is for illuminating. Tasteless salt is pointless, worthless. Hidden light is pointless, we are salt and light. Let's do our thing <laughs> in the grace and power of God. We ought to live our lives in such a way that people would see our good works. I mean, don't, don't miss that. You are commanded to live in such a way that others would see your good works. That's our light. That's part of our light. The way we love, the way that we talk, the way that we don't complain, the way that we ask for forgiveness, the way that we're honest with ourselves and with other people, all of those things. Following Jesus is not a private thing. There's no way that we can interpret the Beatitudes or the Christian life in some sort of personal, privatized way. Jesus intends us to go public with our faith and our hope and our love. So Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, flight into the invisible is a denial of the call. A community of Jesus which seeks to hide itself has ceased to follow him. So, brothers and sisters, fellow disciples of Jesus, no covert discipleship in Wilmington, okay? No covert Christianity. It shouldn't be that our neighbors or coworkers or friends or family would be surprised at some point in the future. Oh, I didn't know you were a Christian. We should pursue conspicuous Christianity, not undercover Christianity. We may need to repent of undercover Christianity. Now, this certainly raises a question, doesn't it? If you know the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, there's a verse in chapter 6, verse 1, that goes like this. Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who's in heaven. <laughs> now, wait a second. Is Jesus speaking out of both sides of his mouth? You see, there's maybe some tension there. So how do you do this? And we'll look at this more when we get to Matthew 6. And this also would be a good assignment to just ponder this afternoon or maybe discuss with your community group. You know, how do we live that tension? Live it out where we do want to go public. We want people to see our good works so that they give God the glory but we also don't want to do it in such a way to be noticed. Wait, wait a second. John Stott says it well. He says this, As the disciples of Jesus, we are not to conceal the truth we know or the truth of what we are. We are not to pretend to be other than we are. 
but be willing for our Christianity to be visible to all. And then he quotes Bonhoeffer here, a flayed into the invisible is a denial of the call. A community of Jesus which seeks to hide itself has ceased to follow him. Rather, we are to be ourselves. We should be ourselves. Our true Christian selves, openly living the life described in the Beatitudes and not ashamed of Christ. Then people will see us in our good works, and seeing us will glorify God, for they will inevitably recognize that it is by the grace of God we are what we are, that our light is his light, and that our works are his works in us and through us. Looks like there's a typo there. Sorry. So it is the light they will praise, not the lamp which bears it. It is our Father in heaven whom they will glorify, not the children he has begotten or who exhibit a certain family likeness. Even those who revile us may not be able to help glorifying God for the very righteousness on account of which they persecute us. Which is back to verses 10 to 12. So how can we live openly, not ashamed of Christ? We certainly should be praying about living this tension. Help me to do that, Lord. I don't want to seek my own glory, but I do want it to be obvious. I want to shine for you. I want to influence for you. Let's pray about that. Let's pray about that together. Let's pray for each other along those lines. A couple thoughts, maybe just things to think about. I so appreciated this about Beth. Um, When she was a, a floor nurse back in Chicago, in the hospital, and this is still the way she is, and I love it, respect it. So she got a job on the floor at Loyola University Medical Center, and she wanted everybody to know right away that she was a Christian. Okay, not in some weird, you know, like shove it down your throat sort of way, but she intentionally wanted it to be known, first off, for accountability. She invited it. It's a good thing. Like, just some of you drive a certain way and then go, ooh, I should take that bumper sticker that identifies me as a Christian off my car. Um, no, I'm just kidding. Did you catch that? Okay. So anyway, she wanted everybody to know for the sake of accountability. And then two, she wanted everything read through that grid. She wanted Jesus to get the glory for anything good that she did. If there's anything in her character that's good, it's because she's a Christian. So again, maybe that's a little intimidating or overwhelming, like I sometimes conduct myself in such a way that I wouldn't want them to connect those dots. So again, repent. Let's live the Beatitudes. And then we don't have to be afraid of people finding out. Or we screw up. Okay, we can be honest. And man, That's refreshing. Somebody just owned their failure, their sin, and they were honest about it. That, once again, shines with Jesus' light. Okay? Or if you're ever complimented, like at work, and again, there's probably a hokey way to do this, but there's an authentic, real way to do this. Like sometimes people will commend something in you, praise something in you. You can give God the glory. You can deflect that to the source because ultimately it's not you. It's Christ in you. And people should know that. And God gets the glory and you shine with his light. So be ready for those opportunities. Take them when they come. And 
deflect the praise and the glory to Jesus who has created that light within you. All right? So Jesus is not commanding us in this passage to be showy or to show off. He's commanding us not to hide our light. Light shines. That's what it does. It's supposed to illumine. So we've got to be prepared so that we can give him glory in those opportunities and see them when they come. But also we need to be prepared. Light also exposes and it pierces and it's threatening sometimes. So there's a reason why this comes right on the heels of persecution in verses 10 to 12, right? So it's going to also kick up some opposition. But it will dispel darkness and bring warmth and be radiant and attractive and helpful and illuminating illuminating and people will be drawn and will glorify our Father in heaven. So don't you long for that kind of influence? Anybody? Yeah. So last point, influence. Let's just think about this big picture because both of these metaphors are about influence. We're all being influenced all the time. And we all have the opportunity to influence all the time. So ask yourself, between you and the world, you know, we started out with this, how does a Christian relate to the world, responsibility of society. Between you and the world, which way is the influence traveling? Remember Romans 12? Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So we are set in distinction from the world. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. The world is decaying. Your salt. The world is dark. Your light. So we're different from the world as light is from dark. So John Stott again says the, the sermon is built on the assumption that Christians are, are different and it issues a call to be different. Probably the greatest tragedy of the church throughout its long and checkered history has been its constant tendency to conform to the prevailing culture instead of developing a Christian counterculture. So influence actually comes not from conformity, but from distinctiveness. We've got to be different to influence. So if we are so much like the world, we won't have any influence on the world. So again, we go back to the Beatitudes and we follow Jesus with these ethics of the kingdom and we will shine with his light. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, The glory of the gospel is that when the church is absolutely different from the world, she invariably attracts it. So, brothers and sisters, how much influence is Jesus having on you and me? That will directly determine how much influence we have on the world. We have this calling to both preserve and promote, to stop decay and spread light. This world is decaying. This world is full of darkness. And Christians aren't called to just sit together and bemoan how the world's going to hell in a handbasket. Instead, what an opportunity. Hey, we're salt. Hey, we're light. Perfect. This is an opportunity. It's so easy for us to get so negative about, oh, how bad it is, and I'm the only Christian in my office. Perfect. You're light. So clearly, Jesus believes that you and I can make a difference. Isn't that amazing? 
Jesus intends for us to make a difference, which is awesome. I mean, don't you want your life to count? Don't we long for greatness and glory and significance and influence and purpose? It's why we love epic stories. It's why we love adventures and they capture our attention. And yet, for most of us, haven't you felt like things haven't really turned out as I'd hoped? Our lives are small. We failed. We continue to fail. As we get older, our horizons shrink. Dreams die. Frustrations abound. Monotony, smallness, pointlessness abound. We can almost have this existential sadness and defeat that seeps into our souls. And then you see a video of America's Got Talent, and there's the golden buzzer, and it's this small, weak person, you know, who's overcome these obstacles, and they get the golden buzzer, and it's like, you know, you start crying, and, you know, this longing for something to happen, some influence is awakened again. Sometimes we try to scratch at it with cheap echoes of greatness and glory, like sports glory, past or maybe present, the glory days, video game greatness, porn is alluring because of the lie that he or she wants you. The world is trying to make everything epic, baking shows, oh, whoa, this is serious, you know, stuff's getting real, we were almost out of time. Come on, you're making cupcakes for crying out loud. But listen, Jesus is not under any illusions. He knows who we are. He knows how small and weak and ordinary we are. Jesus said this, this, to ragtag Middle Eastern peasants. You are the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. So if you are a Christian, Jesus is saying to you and me with our little ordinary lives, you're the the world. You little ordinary everyday you that burps and passes gas and gets boogers and zits and earwax and dandruff, you are the light of the world. If you're a disciple, you are the light of the world. God himself lit you by his grace. You are lit. Okay. Um, emoji. By God. And he lit you for a purpose and it's way more ordinary and way more glorious than we ever imagined. So if we live the Beatitudes this week, we're going to flavor the world. We're going to preserve the world. Don't worry about how small your world is. Leave that in God's hands. Just give your world the salt of God. Live the Beatitudes this week. Don't worry how small your world is. Leave that in God's hands. Give your world the light of Christ. So listen, every, I mean, look at how it's, Fleshed out in the context, every humble prayer prayed, chapter 6, every secret gift given, every inner battle for purity fought, every decision to lay up treasure in heaven, every refusal to consume your life with consumption, choosing instead the kingdom of God as your first thing, every time you start to get all judgy and hypercritical and you remember your sinfulness and your, you know, ah, God has such mercy on me. I need to be merciful. He hasn't dealt with me as I deserve. What am I doing treating these people like this? 
every bit of that he sees. And we start to embody the Beatitudes, and we are going to make a difference. So I gave this list of, you know, all these well-known influential people. But do you realize that everybody that's a Christian is salt and light? So who had influence on you to lead you to Christ? I bet they were ordinary. What if there hadn't been a fill-in-the-blank, that person's name? Maybe it's a mother or grandmother or a neighbor or a coworker, or a teammate or a friend. So guess what? This kind of eternal influence can happen this week, like tomorrow on a Monday in your life. Eternal impact, internal influence with your neighbor this afternoon maybe. Toward your boss, your employee, next week, like next Thursday, could be eternal influential impact. This is very ordinary stuff for very ordinary people like you and me, but this is how we will become a city of God on a hill, shining. This is how we're going to be salt and light in Wilmington. All right, let's pray, and then we're going to sing a couple songs before we're dismissed. Oh, God, please, would you change us? What we need to know, would you please teach us? What we need to have, would you please give us? What we need to be, would you please make us? So that we can shine with your radiant light and grace and love and kindness and be salt that preserves and flavors this world around us, the world that you've planted us in. In Jesus' name and for his glory we pray. Amen.